0: Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, also, just yes of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, if you remember, last time we were together, we looked at the terms justified and grace as a gift in the in section here. Look again at verses uh, 24 Uh, verse 24 and 25, and are justified, everybody's fallen short of God's glory, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So let's deal with this term redemption. This term is tied to the old slave market, and it meant paying the ransom to accomplish the slave's release. So I'm going to kind of show you how the Bible's been showing us how God paid a ransom to set us free. Go to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2 and look at verses 3 through 7. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 3, Paul says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. By the way, don't skim over that verse too quickly. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires... Who? All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. All right, so here we see that Jesus offered himself as a ransom to buy us back. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to come back to this section uh, in a little bit later on in our study as well. And we'll read this same section a little further uh, than we will just now. But go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and look at verses 18 and 19. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Let me give you one more. Go to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus is speaking here. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we have been redeemed, redemption, that term we have here in our passage in Romans 3, by God paying a ransom. Now, here's the question, though, and I'm not going to have you answer it out loud, because as I've asked this question over the years, a lot of Christians get this one wrong, and I don't want to embarrass you. So don't answer it out loud. Just think about the answer to yourself. Who or what did Jesus redeem us or ransom us from? A lot of people think that it was Satan. A lot of people think that Jesus paid a price to Satan to buy us back, that we belong to Satan, and so Jesus paid the slave price, the ransom price to Satan to get us free. Nothing could be further from the truth, from our sin. That's the correct answer. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Go to Galatians chapter 3. And the verses 10 through 14. Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So here it says we were under a curse, under the curse of the law, and Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. I'm going to show you in a second how he ransomed us from our sin. But at the same time, keep this in mind. The Old Testament law said... You have to keep it perfectly. And if you don't keep it perfectly, you're under the curse of the law. You're condemned by the law as a sinner. Now go to Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 15 through 23. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 15. You have become slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members or your body parts as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members or body parts as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. All right. Keep reading. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin. Do you think how it's it's been repeated over and over? What have we been set free from? Sin. All right. And have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we've been set free from sin. All right. Now, here's what I want to clarify for you, because I'm going to have to fight everything in me from getting too far ahead in our study of Romans. And you're going to see even tonight some of the passages that I'm going to use to illustrate some of these things are going to deal with how we live our Christian life as a believer now that we have been set free. And everything in me wants to go down this road tonight of teaching you how to live in the spirit and not in the flesh since we've been set free from sin and been become slaves to righteousness. We're gonna get there in our study of Romans. Can't wait to get there. It's hopefully gonna be really helpful for you because if you're honest with yourself, even though the Bible says we have been ransomed, Jesus has paid the ransom price and set free from sin, we still struggle with sin. And a lot of Christians question their salvation and don't, it's mainly because they don't know who they really are and what's been accomplished and the fact that we are set free and we don't know how to live in the spirit versus in the flesh. We're gonna get into all of that. You're gonna see some passages tonight that I'm gonna to use to deal with other topics we're gonna to cover tonight that hint at that. And I am and I, gonna do everything in my power to keep from preaching that tonight because we're gonna get there later, I promise you. But listen closely. We have received a redemption. We have been ransomed. Jesus is what? By his blood and we've been set free from sin and because of our sin we were under a curse because the law said "Cursed is everyone who doesn't keep it and if you break it even in a small portion you've broken the whole law you're under a curse you were slaves to sin and Jesus came and paid the ransom price. Now The next word we're going to deal with back in Romans 3, because we're going to spend most of our time tonight in it, and we won't even scratch the surface of it. The next word we're going to deal with is propitiation. Go back to Romans 3 now and look at verse 25. The same Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then it goes on and he clarifies, and we're going to get to that tonight. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this word propitiation is a big word with deep meaning. It means to satisfy or to appease, to meet the requirements. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Jesus met the requirements. Uh, let me show you where actually Isaiah 53, go back to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah 53 actually told us this. Isaiah 53, look at verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, it says, Speaking of this suffering servant, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, the one who made the offering, Jesus shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Again, showing that he'll actually rise from the dead. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be what? Satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus paid the ransom price to make, to, to make propitiation or to appease the wrath of God to satisfy the righteous requirements that needed to be made in order for us to be made right with him. Jesus did that himself, all by himself. And all we do is receive it as a gift by faith in his grace. That's it, right? And when that happens, you are, that's the word we looked at first, justified, declared righteous. But this word propitiation, we got to wrestle with a little bit because there's some misconceptions about it. False religions use this word, too. And the false religions would use this term to mean appease the anger of the gods. And man would have to do something to appease God's anger. You know how you've heard about how the Jews even got sucked into believing that they had to offer their children to Molech. And you had to do something to appease the anger of the gods or sacrifice virgins, as you've heard some people talk about in times past. But the the false religion way of using this word is to appease the anger of the God. And you had to do it yourself to appease his anger towards you. But this is not how the the word is used in Scripture. And also, any teaching that says that Jesus had to appease God's anger towards mankind is false. We need to go there because I've heard preachers give illustrations along this line that are not in connection with Scripture. They don't line up with Scripture. There are some that think that the Father was angry toward us because of our sin, and Jesus went and met the price and appeased the anger of God toward us. He went in as a mediator and he went, has anybody ever heard the preacher give the illustration of as the courtroom scene and our sin and God is the judge and he's declared us guilty and then Jesus is our defense attorney and he gets up and he says, but daddy, I've paid for him. Look at my hands, look at my side. And the father says, okay, he's innocent. You've ever heard that illustration? It has the father feeling one way and the son feeling a different way. That's impossible. And on top of that, it doesn't match up with scripture. You all can quote John 3, 16, right? For God was so angry at the world that he sent his son. Is that what it says? No. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And I want to show you that the actions of Jesus, according to the scripture, when he was on the earth, were the actions of the father. What Jesus did, how Jesus felt, what Jesus said, what Jesus thought was the actions of the Father. He's not appeasing the anger of God toward us and trying to calm the Father down. He's meeting the righteous requirements. The anger of God, you're going to see, is there and it's real. And the wrath of God's going to be dealt with toward those who reject this free gift. But we'll get to that in a second. Go to John chapter 17. But don't think for a second that the Father felt one way towards you, and Jesus felt a different and Jesus different way, and Jesus calmed him down. That's that's not biblical at all. Go to John seventeen. Look at verses one through eight and listen closely to what Jesus says as he's praying right before he goes to the cross. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, John 17 verse one, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Who was the one that sent Jesus to the earth? The Father. And the actions of Jesus, as you're going to see, jump over to John chapter 14. Jump back to John 14. Look at verses 6 through 10. The actions of Jesus the whole time that he was on the earth were actually the actions of the Father. He wasn't trying to calm Daddy down. He was actually demonstrating the love of the Father to the world. And John 14, look at verse 6. He's just said, well, we'll just read it. Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? Listen closely to what he says here. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. When Jesus walked on the earth, even though he was God, he humbled himself, submitted himself, and only did what the Father had him do in the power of the Spirit. He, 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 he could have, being God, claimed to call it equality with God, something to be grasped, but he took the role of a servant. And that's why Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 17, that my father's always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And then verse 19, the son does nothing by himself. He only does what the father's doing. And so Jesus himself said, the works you've seen me do, the words you've heard me speak, they weren't even me. It was the Father. So any teaching that Jesus appeased the anger of God toward man and got in between us and God to calm him down, horrible illustration, unbiblical. So what's being appeased then? And by the way, I could go further. We don't have to turn there, but y'all know in Luke 23, verses 32 through 43, Jesus is on the cross and he's praying what? Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. It sounds like he's feeling one way and the the father's feeling another, but what did we already see? The words and the actions are all the father. That's the heart of the father. All right, but what's being appeased then? What's being appeased? What's being satisfied? What's happening there then? What's being appeased? Listen closely God's wrath toward sin. But it gets deeper than that, so you got to stick with me for a little bit. Go to Psalm 99. Look at verse 8. It says, O, o Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God toward them, to them, but an avenger... Of their wrongdoings. You were forgiving toward them, but you also avenged their wrongdoings. As we're gonna see later on in our study tonight, don't think for a second that when God forgives us of our sin, he acts like it's no big deal. It's a serious deal, and that's what the death of Jesus is demonstrating. One of the things it's demonstrating is the wrath of God towards sin. Yet at the same time, if we don't receive through faith, the only way our sin can be paid for, you'll still be in your sin and you will experience God's wrath toward your sin on the day of judgment. And as you're gonna see from the scriptures, his judgment will be meted out in accordance with proportion to, your, in proportion to your sins. All right, so stick with me here. The righteous requirements to take away sin were met by Jesus, paid for by his blood. But if you say, No thanks. Take it back. I don't want it. You're still in your sin. And the wrath that he has towards sin, as you're going to see from the scriptures, is heading your way. It's like this. It's like you say you're at a restaurant, and I walk up and I say, look, I'm going to pay your bill, and I pay your bill. And you say to the manager or the waiter, I don't want Jim to pay my bill. I want to pay my own bill. Give him his money back. Was the bill paid? Yes, it was. But you rejected it, so it was rescinded. You still owe the bill. The wrath of God towards sin was demonstrated, and the price paid at the cross through Jesus' blood. And it's now offered. Hey, it's been paid for. If you say no thanks, take it back, you still owe the debt. And that wrath towards sin, which was appeased, but only for those who accept. Did you catch back in Isaiah 53? He will make the many righteous, not all. Oh, he loves all, wants all to be saved, has no desire for anyone to perish, wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, go to First John chapter 2. That's the only unforgivable sin. Yeah, that's where we're going to go there. Yeah. Go to 1 John chapter 2. I'm jumping ahead in my notes a little bit, but we'll come back to it as well. But I want you to see this real quick. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 2. Actually, we'll start in verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, John writes, he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? The whole world. So he made propitiation for the world's sin. Does that mean the world's going to heaven? Nope. You have to receive it. Even though Jesus paid for the sins of the world, that's why Jesus said the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He said any blasphemy will be forgiven to men. Any sin will be forgiven. All of them will be except one. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit draws you, offers you this free gift, and you say, no, thank you, that one is the only one not covered. And when you reject that, one day you're going to stand before the great white throne and he's going to open books and everything you've ever done that was sin was written down in those books, and you'll be judged according to what was written in the books. And on top of that, they're going to check one more book, Book the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name's not in that, that means you rejected the offer, and you've just added the biggest one, the whopper, to your list. That's why the Hebrew writer says, back in the Old Testament, someone was condemned on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How? much worse will it be on that day of judgment for those who have trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant which sanctified them. The righteous requirement was paid. It was met. But you have to receive it by faith. And if you don't receive it by faith, you're still in your sin, and that wrath of God which was demonstrated towards sin is now heading in your direction. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Look at verses 5 and 6. Again, I'm going to keep from trying to preach the later in Romans part of our study, but he says, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Why is the wrath of God coming? Because of sin. All right? Now look at Ephesians chapter 5. Back up to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 8. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And God let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, I'm going to try to keep from going down that road and preaching that section of Romans which we're going to get to, but listen closely to what's being said here. He said, listen, he, the price has been paid for your sin, and that if you're redeemed, learn how to walk in that, because judgment is coming for those who live sexual immorality, idolatry and all those things. Listen closely. The gospel is that Jesus has already paid the price for your sins, all of them. all of them. It's already been paid for. The wrath of God toward you and your sin, if you're in Christ, has already been satisfied. You are free, listen closely, to live. However, you want. False teachers jumped in and said, That means since we've been made new in our spirit and we're still in these old bodies, you can do whatever you want in your body. It's not sin. That's why throughout the scriptures, the Bible warns us about taking the grace of God and using it as a license to sin. But the gospel is, it's been so paid for, all covered, you're free to live however you want. You've been set free from sin. Now, as Paul's going to deal with later on, for those of us who have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness, we don't want to live like that anymore. What benefit did we even get from that, as he goes on and says? But there were those who came in and said, you can sin sexually, you can do whatever you want, you can just live like the world because you're forgiven. And how many people have we seen over the years in bars and all those places who say, I'm saved, praise God, pass the beer, you know? And they think they can just kind of live however because they prayed the prayer. They're, they're covered. Paul says, hang on. If you live like this, wrath is coming towards you. Because it's evidence that the Spirit of God is really not in you. Because you're happy with that and you want to live like Those who live like that, they're not in the kingdom. But he also says, that's not how we're supposed to live. Go to Romans. Nah, we won't take that right, time-wise. We need to keep moving. Just write down Romans 2, 1 through 11 as he goes even further and talks about how God's forbearance, his patience towards you is to bring you to repentance. But don't think that you're going to just be forgiven. You have to understand that there's a wrath coming towards sin. And if you don't accept God's forgiveness... You're still in your sin, and it will be judged. Actually, instead of me just trying to explain it that way too quick, go to Romans 2. I think we got time. We'll hit it quick. Romans 2, look at what he says here in Romans 1 through 11. He said, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, that's one of those words we saw earlier, we'll come back to later tonight, and and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's going to render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does the evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, which we saw was tied to how much they had revealed to them in proportion. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. His patience with you is to bring you to repentance. But if you don't, Respond to the truth. You're storing up more and more wrath for yourself on that day of judgment when his wrath is coming. But Jim, wasn't didn't the Bible say that, it, that, that Jesus paid the price and, and, and he's our propitiation and, and the wrath of God is appeased? For all who receive it. For all who receive it by faith. It's a gift that you have to receive by faith and that's when you're declared righteous. So how did Jesus' death for sin appease God's wrath towards sin? How did Jesus' death towards sin or for sin appease God's wrath towards sin? He took it upon himself. He took it upon himself. Very good. There's, there's many levels to this, so don't be afraid to answer other ways as well. He took it upon himself. Very good. Remember, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Very good, Jeremy. He took it upon himself. Somebody else. The blood was shed. We're going to see that tonight. The Bible's really clear, and we've already looked at one of those passages earlier. Go, go back there. Actually, we'll go near the end. We're going to go back there again to First Peter 1 and how he ransomed us with his own blood. We'll go back there near the end of our study because it ties to how we're going to close. But it was through his blood, and there's something else there too. Definitely by his death, his resurrection. The separation of his Spirit from God. I'm sorry? Separation of his- When he experienced hell as he was separated from God and the Father, yes. But also, don't miss this part, too, in his becoming human. Because wasn't bloodshed by bulls and goats? Oh, yeah. yeah, but that, that didn't take away people's sin. But Jesus became a human being. And became, well, man sinned. Man has to pay for sin. You don't put to death a dog for your sin. Man has to pay the price. But it has to be a sinless man. There's none. So God, and you're going to see the scripture shows us this, before the world was even made, put this plan in motion that he himself would take on human form, live the sinless life, offer his own blood, rise from the dead, and give it through faith, This gift of eternal life and righteousness to all who would believe. All of the pictures in the Old Testament of the sacrifices and the law and the blood and all that, they were all pointing to something that God had already planned all along. And you're going to see the scripture start to illustrate this now in just a little bit. Go with me to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Now, again, I know we're hitting some deep stuff and we're hitting it kind of fast. But I pray that through the Spirit of God, you'll be able to kind of let some things sink in because we're going somewhere with this tonight. Go to Colossians 2. Look at verses 11 through 15. In him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Stop. Don't go too quick. I'm pretty sure everybody in here know what circumcision is, right? Circumcision is is a thing in which they remove skin, flesh. What do they do with it? They throw it away. We were circumcised. When you were born again and given righteousness by God and declared righteous and sealed by his spirit, you received a circumcision where God took your flesh and threw it away. You have been now circumcised, not done by human hands but by the Spirit of God. Keep reading. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And by the way, the baptism doesn't mean your water baptism. It means when the spirit, you were spirit baptized. And that happened at the time you trusted Christ. He came to live inside of you. As Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 20, in that day, you'll realize I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the father. You want to talk about being baptized. You have been baptized in the spirit. You are swimming in God right now. He's in you and you're in him and he's in the father. You might as well just do this. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit at the moment you get saved. When you were put into Christ and he was put into you, everything that is his is now yours. Again, anybody here fully understand that? Not even close. But I'm hoping to grasp it it more and more as I get closer to seeing him face to face. He canceled all of your sins. You've always heard preachers say, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are all covered. And that passage here in says that. Does it say that the sins that were canceled were the ones that you committed prior to you trusting Christ, but you're still responsible for the ones after you got saved? No. This preacher went home one day and his wife sat him down and she said, I got a problem. He goes, What's that? She goes, I've heard you say it and I've heard preachers say it for years that Jesus' death paid the price for all of my sins and all of my sins have been canceled. I'm struggling with that. She said, I can understand me trusting in Jesus today and all the sins that I had done prior have been forgiven. But I'm struggling with grasping, understanding how the sins I do today or tomorrow or whatever after being saved are already covered. And the preacher says to his wife, he said, let me ask you a question. Um, When did Jesus pay the price for your sins? And she said, well, 2,000 years ago. He said, okay. When he paid the price for your sins, how many of them were future? They all were. So if he paid the price for your sins and canceled the debt at the cross... Your debt's canceled even for the stuff tomorrow. Again, this is where the false teachers want to jump in and say, hey, do what you want, man. And Paul even says, all things are lawful, but not everything's beneficial. I don't think we really understand the the truth of the fact that we are righteous before God. The righteousness of Christ is ours. We're in him. He's in us. But I don't see it a whole lot. That's a study for another time. Let the truth sink in for now. I've had preachers tell me, Jim, I know what you're saying is right, just don't tell them. They'll abuse it. No. I really come to realize that if we really understand it, we won't. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now... That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So hang on for a second. Some of you say, Jim, I was loving all of that until he put that qualifier on. I don't always walk according to the Spirit. Sometimes I walk according to the flesh. Well, that's why you've got to keep reading. All right? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So when he said, the righteous requirements of the law have already been met by those who God has done with the law weakened in the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He's not saying how good you're doing today. If Christ is in you, you're walking according to the spirit. Now, You may not keep in step with the Spirit, but you're still walking in the Spirit because Christ is in you. And we're going to learn in time. Again, everything in me wants to go down that road, and we're going to save it for another time. But let this truth sink in. If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Yeah, but all of your sins were future, and they were canceled. So even the ones you do tomorrow have already been canceled. In the eyes of God, you are declared as if you'd never sinned. You're righteous. It's hard for us to let that sink in, isn't it? It's really hard for us to let this sink in. Now, I want to go to 1 John chapter 4. We already saw chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where he said, My little children, I write these things so you don't sin. But if we do, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he was the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the whole world if they'll receive it. Go to 1 John chapter 4, though. Look at verses 9 and 10. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, what's that word? For the propitiation for our sins. You're going to see it. Go back to 1 John 2 again. I just quoted it to you, but look at it again. My little children, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you, these who you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's already paid the price. He's already appeased the wrath of God toward your sin. And not for yours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, so Listen closely. The Bible's real clear that because Jesus is the propitiation for your sin, God is pleased, God is appeased, he's satisfied, the righteous requirements have been met. Stop trying to do things in order to get back right with God. Just receive that truth by faith and learn how to walk in that by faith. Now, back in Romans 8, though, something very interesting was said, and I don't know how many of you caught it, that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, we got, this is very important. This is why the virgin birth is paramount for the doctrine of Christianity. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you don't understand the gospel. He had to be born of a virgin. Why? Well, let me say this to you. Did Jesus have sin in his flesh? No. But when we're born, do we have sin in our flesh? Yeah, we're born with it. David even himself in Psalm 51 said this, in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying that I was conceived in the backseat of a car and my parents were teenagers or anything like that. He was saying, "Lo, she didn't sin in giving birth to me. I was conceived with sin. From the moment I was conceived and put in my mother's womb, I had sin. Well, how come Jesus then, if he was flesh, and fully man, what's that? His father. his father was God. He had an earthly mother, but his father was not from this world. It was God. And that's why the Holy Spirit came and said, the power of God is going to come upon you. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. And the child within you is going to be the child of God. Even though he had flesh, he was also God. And that sin that was just automatically passed on to everyone, he didn't have. Was he tempted? <laughs> Sure. But he didn't have it like we do. God's Spirit negated Mary's sin? Uh, here's We don't have time. That's a great question. Does God's Spirit negate Mary's sin? I don't have time to chase this rabbit. I think there are some scriptural hints that say that it's kind of passed on to us from our daddy. But at the same time, if you want to get real genetic, if your mama's got it, she's passing it on to you too. Do you see what I'm saying? But in that instance, then you have to say the spirit of God overwhelmed. This is deeper than we can grasp. He had no sin. We are born with it and it manifests itself. And that's why he had to be born of a virgin. He had to be born of a virgin. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you see that? He had to become human to be the right sacrifice and to be the faithful high priest. Keep reading with me. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in these next two passages, I'm going to give you a little hint. You're going to see something that goes that's going to tie back to what Paul said in Romans 3, verses 25 and following. That is, in his forbearance, he passed over former sins. We're going to take. You're going to see this come out a little bit in the next two passages. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We'll start where we looked earlier and then keep reading. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through faith... Sorry, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and his glory, like the flower of the grass and the grass withers and the flower fails or falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We've been not only born again through the blood of Christ, we've been born again and given a seed that is imperishable. God's spirit, The same one that raised Jesus from the dead and gave him victory over sin in the flesh lives within each one of us now. And oh, by the way, further evidence that you can't lose your salvation if you've been given salvation. That's why Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, I will lose none that the Father has given me. I'll lose none that the Father has given me. Does that mean that there's some people that God didn't give it? Well, well, there's many that he didn't give to Jesus. He, Jesus died for the sins of the world, but the only ones given to Jesus are the ones who put their faith in Jesus. Now, you gotta keep something else in mind as well. If he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, in the mind of God, even though there was a point in time in history that we know that Jesus died for the sins of the world, in the mind of God, it was, he sees it all as now. That's why he can declare Old Testament people who put their faith in him righteous. Why? Because in the mind of God, it's already paid for. That's why in his forbearance, he's passed over former sins because he knows that the payment has been or will be made in our time and in, in space. Yet at the same time, when it actually happened, it was to demonstrate that his wrath towards sin and at the same time make clear to everyone that he is the just one and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, it had been planned before the foundation of the world. And in the mind of God, it's already been done even before it happened in time and space. That's why God can declare things before they even happen because he knows that they've happened. Makes your head hurt. That's why we're already seated in the heavenly realms, even though in time and space we don't experience it yet. But it's true. In the same way, Jesus' death was already accomplished, therefore, God can declare people righteous because the payment he knows will be and has been made in his mind. Yet at the same time, he did it publicly so that everybody understands it's all been done by him. His plan, he was pointing to it all along, accomplished it himself, gave proof by raising him from the dead, has left us here to... Pass it on and to share this truth. And one day he's going to come back and make clear to everybody that he is the one. Go to Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9, look at verses 11 through 28. You're again going to see a little bit of that forbearance in this passage. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation... to serve the living God. In other words, he's saying, if you let this truth sink in, your conscience will be clear before God and you'll be wanting to serve him and just worship him because you'll really understand he did it. You're free. He's declared you're righteous. And your actual response when that truth really hits is, thank you. What do you want? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What do you want? I've been set free from my slavery to sin. And now I'm a slave of righteousness, and I want to. Oh, there's still times in my flesh I let it win. But I can honestly tell you, and if I know you probably know this as well, when you sin, you feel really good about it. No, you hate it. You don't want to do it again. But you know you will. It's in this struggle. But God, I think, has, God has actually left us in this struggle. There's many reasons. But one of them is so that we would rely on him. Still, apart from me, apart from him, I can do nothing, he says. Go to keep reading, though. Therefore, he, verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, by the way, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since when? Oh, so are you trying to tell me that even though Jesus' death happened 2,000 years ago, he had already done it before the foundation of the world? Don't try to understand, it. it's going to make your head hurt.: Just Exactly. But as, he, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Whoa, 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 whoa. hang on for a second. I, I thought he was coming back to deal with sin. Oh, no, he's going to come again and deal with sin when it comes to wrath. But he's going to come and gather those who are waiting for him first. See, people didn't understand that the coming of the Messiah had two parts. He had to come and be the suffering servant and pay for the sins of the world. And then he would come again and set up his kingdom. His second coming has two parts. That's why the early church was taught to wait for Jesus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, how uh, salvation has taught us to renounce ungodliness and to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 talks about how they turn, they, they tells us how you turn to God from idols to wait for his son from heaven. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, I finished the race, I fought the fight, and I know there is waiting for me, the crown of righteousness, but not only for me, but for also for all those who are longing for his appearing. The church was never taught to watch for the Antichrist. The church was taught to look for Jesus, and he's going to come, and he's going to bring and give salvation to those who are waiting for him. Then he's going to actually, that's just in the clouds. Then he's going to come back to the earth and deal with sin and wrath. For those who reject his offer. But how many of you noticed, in many of these passages, references was made to God's patience with man's sin, yet a serious dealing with sin had to be made. That's what Paul's saying here. Go back to verse 25. "Whom God put forward, Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation, an appeasement of, of his demands, by his blood." To, receive, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Have you, have you ever noticed how the center of time pretty much is Jesus? And all the stuff before was pointing to him and all the stuff after is pointing back to it and what he did at the cross? And what the cross did was show God's wrath towards sin and also demonstrate that He's the one who pays for sin. Do you know what you and I bring to the table? You know what you and I bring to this transaction of Jesus paying for our sin? Actually, we do bring something. What do we bring? You bring your sin. You, this transaction, you bring your sin. That's what, we, that's what we bring to the table in this transaction. We bring our sin. Don't forget that. He died for your sins and mine. For years, people have said, oh, the Jews, they killed the Messiah. No, I killed the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. We all killed the Messiah. He was put to death for our sins and for our iniquities. Were you... <laughs> We're made righteous through faith in Jesus' righteousness, and all we bring to the table in this interaction is our sin. Do we have anything to boast about? That's what Paul says at the end of Romans 3. Again, look what he says in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Nope. But by the law of faith. By the way, let me stop real quick. Remember, again, I've said it before. I'm going to repeat it to you. Maybe i let this truth sink in. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus said, many on that day are going to say, wait a minute, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And I'll say, I never knew you. What were they looking to for their righteousness? Their works. Let me read again Romans chapter 2. He'll render to each one according. To his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. What's the truth? Who's the truth? Jesus. Jesus. In John chapter six, verse 28, the Jews came to him and said, what must we do to do the works of God? Verse 29, he says, the work of God is this, believe in the one that he sent. It's always been by faith. So we have nothing to boast about. We'll have one last passage. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. I love this. I'm going to read it to you fast. I think I can read it in a minute and a half that we have left. 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it's the power of God. By the way, if you go to our website at Just Preacher Ministries, it literally says that. It says that we, we use the foolishness of preaching to accomplish God's work. And this lady contacted us. I forgot where in the country she was, but she said, I don't like that. You, you shouldn't say that preaching is foolish. I said, go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. She writes back, oh. <laughs> For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. By the way, that's why I'm going to challenge you, Glenn. Don't try to figure it out. It'll hurt you. Because he's made it where it's just to be received by faith. If we think we can grasp it all, you're not going to. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God's wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I preached in your name. I cast out demons. I've worked for so many years. I'm a church member. Beware of any of that. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You've been set free from your sin. We'll get into that a lot more later in our study. God's wrath has been appeased. The righteous requirements have been met. But if you don't receive it, By faith, you say, God, take it back. I'll pay for myself. His wrath's coming to you. And I pray no one in here and those who are listening online ever end up in that situation. Now, begin to ask God to help you understand a little bit more as he wants. He knows when you can handle it and how you can handle it. Ask the truth of these things to start to sink in a little bit more so that we can start to live in that power of the new life that is ours already in Christ Jesus. I love you all. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.